0: or thinking about contemplating teaching or maybe you uh, also uh, already are in teaching roles but not specifically around mindfulness or you're in roles of position of power um, or authority or you're in the therapist seat the analyst seat um, where you're already uh, quite skilled and familiar with working with patient student therapist client Uh, dynamics so this is a very rich field of um, teaching so I'm I'm going to talk less about the 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 art of teaching but more the some of the the dynamics and unconscious processes that go on that it behooves us uh, when in a teacher role to be conscious of because we will be uh, You know, you will be working with a lot of different students and clients and various dynamics will uh, come out of those unconscious processes. So I'll explain a lot more in detail what that is in a minute. Um, But before I go into any of that, I want to invite you to reflect on your own relationship to teachers, right? So most of this, this afternoon will be oriented around your role in a teaching role or in a in a a position of power of some sorts. But I want you to take a moment to reflect on uh, your role as a student or your experience as a student and the various teachers that you've had, whether it's in mindfulness, in meditation, in Buddhism, in therapy, in whatever your line of work or interest. Just take a moment to think about your role and experience as a student in relationship to your teacher. Certainly in the tradition from where these teachings come from, that teacher-student relationship is often very important, and also very charged, very loaded in a certain way, skillfully and unskillfully. So just take a moment to think about how it's been, how it has been, how it is. You may still have very strong um, relationships, interactions with a teacher, mentor, spiritual guide, And what uh, happens for you what stuff what uh, things get triggered in that dynamic it may be love or gratitude or appreciation but it might be a longing to be seen to be met to be understood maybe you've had a very provocative prickly relationship with authority figures and not liking the authority or wanting to challenge the authority or wanting to uh, perhaps give over too much of your autonomy to authority. Maybe you've had challenging relationships with authority figures who have not been so skillful. So I want just to reflect first on the student side of the experience because that's mostly what we're going to be looking at and even though most of you are uh, are teaching and facilitating in some ways, Uh, always good to remember what it's like to be in the receiving seat. So with that, I'm gonna ask you to, in a moment, to find, uh, turn to the person next to you. We'll do a little more mindful listening. We'll do a couple of practices this afternoon, mindful listening. And um, we're going to take it in turn. So partner A will share for a few minutes just about an, anything that comes up for you around reflecting uh, on your experience as a student in mindfulness, in meditation, in Buddhism, in whatever your field of study is, what your experience is like, what projections you had, what hopes, what uh, both what was rich, but also what was challenging, what got triggered for you in that role. Um, partner B's role is simply to listen and then we'll ring a bell. We'll switch roles and partner B will share for a few minutes, just a few minutes on their own experience of uh, being in this student role and any dynamics, conscious or unconscious, that you can now look back on and see, and see we're operating. Does that make sense in my, yeah? Okay, so just turn to someone next to you. Um, if you don't f- have anybody next to you, stand and or raise your hand until we have everybody paired up. Anybody need a partner? Raise your hand. Anybody else need a partner? Okay, so partner A can be the person with the darkest color hair. And um, see what that brings up in the relationship. So, so the person with the darkest color hair can speak for a few minutes on the subject of being in the student role in relationship to a teacher or teacher's So, um, just take a moment to come into silence and Just notice what's in the, in the field here, in your experience, what got evoked If anything, what got triggered as you were listening And then partner B, same thing, with a few minutes on your experience in the, t- in the student side of the student-teacher uh, dynamic or relationship in whatever way you have had teachers in your life. Okay, thank you, partner. And turn to face the front of the room. So anything that come up for you around, just bring that to mind. Some of you may have had had strong uh, shout out. strong relationships, dynamics with teachers. Others may not so much, but just curious, what's any reflections? Just bring that to mind. Yes. There's a tremendous vulnerability mm. in being a student. Mm. Uh, I think that's what really came up for me. Uh, trying
1: something new is really an
2: act of courage. Mm.
1: Mm. Anything that smacks of evaluation, even positive, can take the safety of it. So I think that's the part that came up
0: for me, just remembering my own experiences as a learner. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that. And it's true, it is, it is a place of vulnerability and always good for us to remember that when our students come into the door, they're you know, often coming into a st- strange, different place, might be a different culture, maybe a different, it might be quite a leap from what they've known. And there is an act of faith coming to study with someone and putting your uh, leaving yourself open to them. So there's a receptivity that by its nature has this quality of vulnerability. And the even the slightest thing, as you say, that comes from that authority can have an impact, positive or negative. Yeah. What else in the, in the student role? Yeah.
3: I think for me, a teacher sharing
4: their struggles with practice makes it much more um, human mm-hmm. um, and transparent and authentic in terms of um, like there was a moment said something and she looks and she goes that wasn't very skillful was it mm-hmm. and so it just kind of we could talk about karma in that context but also kind of feel that it's okay to have
0: those moments mm-hmm. so the t- teacher sharing their humanness and their personalness and their, their their own vulnerability in a way in that role yeah, yeah. I'll talk about that s- this afternoon yes the 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 impatient student or the rebellious student and then you have different different teacher responses to that one of which can be tough love yeah. there's a hand over here yeah. that you feel that- So the openness allows you to feel more, or when the less rigidity allows you to feel more open yourself, more able to follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Last one. Of the teachers always being a student and a learner, and learning and growing from their own mistakes and challenges. Yeah, yeah, good. So, um, so I want to bring this topic up because being in a teaching role, especially in a more public role, I mean, as I said, many of you are sharing mindfulness already. Some with students, with clients, with patients, and some of you in a more overt teaching classes and facilitating courses, and probably will be moving more into that. Um, there's a lot goes on. As, as, as those of you know, doing therapeutic work, there's a lot going on in any relationship and any dynamic that has a power differential, which teaching does by its nature. And so good to look at that and good to look because it will come up at times in the room with students and um, important to know how to both track for it and to uh, relate to it and also to not personalize it. Um, Some of it's personal, some of it's not so personal. Most of it's not personal. Most of it's not about you. So to, to reflect for yourself in whatever role you're in around facilitating or teaching or in therapy or in aspiring to do this work, um, what's your relationship to, to that role? What's your relationship to being idealized? What's your relationship to being projected upon? Because right? people will very quickly, as you may recall being in, in your own student role, it's very easy to quickly uh, transfer, project a lot of things onto the teacher that's not actually about the teacher. Right? So how, how is it for you when, when students are triggered by you, when they don't like what you're saying, when they disagree, when they obstruct, when they fall in love with you, when they idealize you, when they expect you to be perfectly mindful all the time, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> so these are good things to reflect on. So the the main thing to 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 hold in mind is there's much more going on than meets the eye. You you might be just you know shuffling along, showing up to a class or to a client, and. Um, going to share, quite simply and humbly, some things you've learned through mindfulness. But the student on the receiving end may have a very different idea and perception of what's going on. So, and in that, um, your, your whole way of being is under scrutiny. So, you're being observed, like when I'm teaching here, I'm aware that I'm being observed by students. How I walk, how I talk, how I interact with students, how I just compose myself in the, how I am in the dining room, um, you know how I am when I drive in, um, how I am when I'm rushing around because I'm late for something, you know, or um, when I'm falling asleep on the on the on the on the dais here, you know or um, forget things or show up late to a group You know that's all being tracked in, in, in a way that has more potency than if someone in the group shows up late right? so um, to be mindful of the, the, the power dynamic that's happening in this role right? and of course that will vary from student to student depending on how much they uh, value this work, how much they idealize the idea of a teacher, how much views and opinions and conditioning they've had about spiritual teachers, whether they see this as spiritual. So you'll have a whole class and there'll be very different dynamics. Some people will just treat you as a person and, and be able to relate to you as just a normal human being. And often that's quite rare because people will have some kind of trip about what it means to be mindful, what it means to, be, means to be a mindfulness teacher, what it means, and how if they hold that in a spiritual light. So um, there's a saying in the Tibetan tradition that ideally your teacher lives seven valleys away from where you live. So this was in the days before cars, right? So Seven Valleys is a long way away, basically, which means they don't see you running around, you know, like a crazy person late for a meeting and, you know, dropping your shopping bag and, you know, on your cell phone at the traffic light in your car. And um, uh, and this, of course, this is in a more sort of this is coming out of a tradition where the teacher-student relationship is very, very um, prized and specific, and there's there's a there's a need in that tradition for the idealized transference onto a teacher, and there is still something to that. Um, so, so another thing that comes up. Um, I was going to talk about this later, but I'm just going to talk about this now in the context of that is um, your own comfort level or not with being the object of an idealized transference. And what I mean by that is that students will often look to you and need you to be an embodiment of the practice. It's a way that they can understand um, the, the potential or the potency of the practice and they may see that in you, whether that's real or not. <laughs> And so, and it's something that, that's been, you know, work for me for many, many years is to be comfortable with that kind of projection, with that kind of idealization. And to see that of, there's so many different ways that teaching is an act of generosity. And you may have to hold a role or a transference that's very uncomfortable for you, very, might be very ego dystonic, very uh, out of sync with how you see yourself but for the student is actually very healthy. Because obviously what they see in us is a reflection of themselves. And so often that holding a teacher in that way as you may have done with many of your teachers is a way that inspires faith, is a way that inspires connection to the practice. Whether you agree with it or not, or like it or not. So... um, you know, and, you, and you may do whatever you can to blow that, the myth of that, that, that inflation and projection. And, if, and sometimes you do that and, and it actually increases the idealization. Oh, they're so humble. They're so real. They're so personal. They must be so enlightened. And, you know, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to say every little foible you have, oh, they're so, so much humility. And so sometimes you can't get out of it. And the uh, the the trick really is to remember it's not about you, right? It's it's so to remember to not to buy into the press release, right? So as that phrase goes, it's not about you, stupid, right? So because sometimes we can get we can we can start to like that. It's like oh, you know, maybe I am special, maybe I am whatever the person is projecting onto me, right? So to see how that arises, our own need for that kind of gratification, that kind of inflation, that kind of idealization. Right? So mostly, I imagine for most people, it's very uncomfortable. But then also to acknowledge where this party is like, oh, it feels pretty good. So and, and one way that manifests, as I noticed, and this used to be the hardest part of teaching for me, is at the end of a class where if people have this kind of um, idealization or this, in this positive transference, they'll mm-hmm. usually want more contact. They'll usually want, because, because they see you in such a positive light, they'll want to be around, they want to sort of you know, feed a little off the glow. Right? So that often happens at the end of a class, you'll have students who want more contact, they just want more. There are various other, other, various other things that are happening why that might be so. Um, but it may just be as simple as people expressing their profound appreciation and gratitude, you know, which many people do, because when people find this practice, it can be life-saving, literally. And so your act of generosity is to be able to um, receive that and to remember it's not about you. It's really you know, the teachings are coming through you. The, the wisdom of the practice is coming through you. Um, but you're the conduit. And so you will get a lot of that transference, which is about the practice. You know, it's about the lineage, but it's coming through you, so people direct it at you. And you might feel incredibly uncomfortable and squirmy that people are expressing so much appreciation and gratitude because all you've, from maybe from your perspective, all you've done is, you know, shed a little mindfulness practice. But for that person, it might be really revolutionary. And so to be able to hold that... Role and to receive the appreciation or the gratitude. Like after a class, I used to always like to just run out the door, ideally before the bell stopped ringing, so I wouldn't have to deal with that, you know, that kind of uh, attention. Um, and and I realized it was actually a disservice to the students who wanted to express gratitude, you know, or, gen- or their generosity or their kindness, you know. So some of the the dynamics, conscious or unconscious, usually unconscious, that are happening in the teacher-student relationship. So, um, uh, and again, I, I'm you know my my primary work is in, in dharma teaching. So, so the, the the role here for us as a dharma teacher, um, that level of projection idealization is up leveled significantly because of. It has a whole spiritual architecture, and you know, we're on a higher level than you. can you've noticed eight inches. <laughs> you know, And there's just a certain etiquette of culture in, in, in Buddhist cultures, and so there's um, uh, that, that transference. I'm higher, I know. Not quite as higher as these guys back here, but um, Yeah, it feels good, you know. <laughs> higher than those people. (laughs) (laughs) So I totally lost my train of thought. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to segue back to what I've got on my notes here, which is a bunch of black or white uh, words. I'm modeling. Yeah, good. I am. I'm taking a reflective pause, which can look like gravitas. Actually, it's just inner confusion, <laughs> masquerading as presence. <laughs> uh, but actually, is I mean, I'm I'm actually very, I've said this to a few because I'm very comfortable just pausing. Like, huh? Where was I? I was going along a certain tra- trajectory. Had a certain trajectory here, and no, oh, that's all disappeared. <laughs> so, um, regardless of the setting that you're in, that as people start to learn the practice, one of the, this is the segue, one of the most important roles of the teacher is to validate people's experience. Because if someone's learning something, especially learning meditation, which is an internal process, it's not like you're learning to, um, say, like I'm doing a ceramics class and I'm learning to throw pots. Right? There's a certain kind of nuts and bolts skill building that's very practical and there's steps. With meditation, it's internal, it's subtle. It's somewhat mysterious, and the, the, the signposts and the road markers along the way are not necessarily things that people have been so familiar with. Okay? So, when people are trying to understand what mindfulness is, or what awareness is, or how this or what mindful communication looks like, there's a, there's a stronger need at times for the teacher to validate. Because the, the, there's, there's, for, for many students, they may not be such a strong reference point for these practices. So one of the, the, the most common dynamics that comes out of that is the student's need for approval, for validation, but also triggering sort of related qualities like needing to be liked, needing to be seen, needing to be recognized, needing to be appreciated, So you'll have people wanting to, their insights and their wisdom to be acknowledged, but that can also feed into a general kind of neediness of wanting to be seen, wanting to be constantly reflected. Or the, the, the student wanting to be the good, the good boy, the good girl, the perfect student. Right? And so um, the, the one seeking a lot of attention, and I'll talk about some of the ways that it happens in a minute, um, another flavor of these d- unconscious dynamics is the power dynamic right? whether people think it's happening or not it's happening right? you're in you know, there's a group of 5 of you or 10 of you or 20 of you in a room and you have a certain seat right? you set the rules you set the boundaries and that gives you a certain power as does any kind of professional relationship therapeutic relationship And there are things that magnify that power dynamic and differential. And so some students will want that. Some students want you and need you to be on a pedestal, need you to be in that power role. And some people are forever kicking you off it and challenging it and hating it. Some people are wanting to bring you down always to the level of a friend so to kind of to mitigate and diminish any, any power differential. And some of you like to maintain and, and, and really keep that place of authority and everything in between. Okay? And you'll, you'll, you'll hear that in the questions of being challenged, being critiqued, the, the cynic sitting in the corner of the room, um, not buying anything that you're saying. And that can manifest in more aggressive ways, where people are hostile to the authority. And there's anger, there's resistance, there's uh, dominating, there's people who like to uh, uh, give a lot of advice to other students, unbidden. So, and this is, this is an interesting role as a teacher and each of us will have our, our different relationship to it. And if I think back to my many, many, many teachers that I've had, um, people hold the, the authority in different ways. Some, some teachers are very, in a more sort of traditional patriarchal authority and some are very uh, sharing with it. Some use it in skillful ways and some use it in unskillful, unconscious ways. And at the same time, you're both in an authority position and also trying to uh, give authority to people and their own experience and their own understanding. Right. And at the same time, there's a place for holding the container of the group and holding the authority and, or the structure so people feel safe, so people feel that there is a container, so people feel like they won't be getting advice from other people. When it's not wanted, sometimes students will regress in your classes, and you'll, you'll, they'll be asking questions that seem very, very obvious. And you think, how come? Why are you asking this question? But there's a, again, there's a, there's a, you know, in, in this in this power dynamic, there's often the regression happens where people see you as mom and dad, see you as the authority, and lose some sense of their own. Um, uh, what's the word autonomy so there's a sense of powerlessness or hopelessness can happen so and then there's there's what I've talked about earlier which is the idealized transference where people want to need to see you as uh, further along the path Right, or was having totally nailed this mindfulness thing, totally got it down, live it every moment. Right? And, and to see what, what it's like for, for you to, to be seen in that way. That you never get angry, they don't get reactive anymore, you have perfect self-regulation. Right? Hard to believe that people have that view, but actually it is. You know, I, I get that a lot, and I don't get a lot personally, but um, I see the projections people have, the starry-eyed, you know. The, the shock when I tell him a story about you know Mr. Mindfulness forgetting his keys for the 50th time that week. So other ways, the the, the, many of you, this is very familiar territory to many of you, especially for therapists. But I think it's useful just to 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 think about it in the context of teaching. And of course, another way that uh, the unconscious dynamics are happening is through the um, attraction, erotic transference, sexual attraction, um, and that whole domain that again you may not consider when you go to teach a mindfulness class. Um Wherever it is, um, and you also become the object of an idealized transference around um, the perfect mate, because you listen because you mindfully listen. And of course, this is accentuated if you do any one on one work or any smaller group work with with um, in your teaching and and you you are displaying you know, great skills of being a communicator, listener, an empath, and whatnot. And of course, you look like this perfect person who would be the perfect person to have a relationship with. And you're mindful, and you're wise. So a lot of, uh, uh, yeah, you know, the, the Vipassana romance that we joke about on retreats, you know, happens in the teaching world for sure. So what's it like to be on the receiving end of that? And how do you relate to that? How do you make space for that and at the same time not take it personally? Not feed it? Because there might be some part of the the ego structure that likes that attention. There's a teacher, Ajahn Jomrion, who's a, a monastic... Uh, from Thailand who was very beautiful as a young man and, and had flocks of young female students that he, w- he, would, he would, he said he used his good looks to attract people to the monastery to get them to practice. <laughs> he was a monk, so, you know, he's pretty safe, you know. So people will have all kinds of distorted relationships with you, especially if you have ongoing teaching situations where you teach in, as I do. And people will fall in love with you. They'll have a relationship with you. And uh, without your, any knowledge that you have, you know, um, they'll break up with you. Uh, they'll repair and you know, fall back in love with you. Um, I've had this with, this has happened, it's very, very painful um, to be, um, I mean it's very painful for the person because of the, the, the intensity of the need and the intensity of the delusion. Right? Where So I'll have students say who comes and brings a gift every time I teach. Right? To me this is a little bit of a red flag. There's something in the idealized transference that's also needing reflection and also, but again, all these things that I'm talking about, the the primary role as a teacher is we're holding it with kindness, really with compassion, and with discrimination. To know what's happening and to um, be be almost like a big enough container to hold that. And, and 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 to be just just as in the therapeutic relationship where you're sort of the, the blank screen where that can get played out and hopefully resolved in some ways. sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So you know I've had situations where um, someone will have a, will have a, this this, f- this fantasy relationship with me, and they'll talk about how I you know. You know, the way I move my cushion that moves slightly in the direction in the meditation hall was a sign. and um, Or the way that we were happened to be standing together at lunch in the line. You know, or something like that. And that, that will f- be enough food for six months. And then I'll get a hate email about six months later saying, how come you never responded to my email, which I mostly don't in those situations and incredibly vitriolic, really, really caustic hatred. And then several months later, there'll be, oh, I've finally come to peace, and I've forgiven you. And, um, and then the next year, I'm back at the retreat center, and it's a similar, similar round. So, um, you know, and it's just painful. You know, and again, we're holding it with compassion, holding it with kindness. And the more that you have an a ongoing relationship with a student, or you, or you work with them one-on-one in some way, or you're in a small group with them, of course, the more these dynamics can, can arise. And it speaks to the need for um, appropriate boundaries, appropriate limits for ways you take care of yourself, the way you get support. So in, 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 in one of these cases where these emails were very um, went on for some time and very vitriolic, you know, I would share them with an ethics council that I worked with at this particular retreat center and just say, I just wanted you to you know this is going on. So if you hear from this person, this is the history that's been going on for the last few years. And whatever is said is going to be seen through this lens. So, and, to, and again, to know that um, however, when you're in the role, even if you feel like you're not in the role, like you're at Whole Foods or you're in the local cafe or you're at the bar somewhere and a student sees you, you're in role for them, right? You, you're not off duty in a certain way. And so to be mindful of that and to be mindful of Um, uh, healthy boundaries and and, and to be clear about how you are even socially and what impact that's having because it's all having an impact Um, without being too unnecessarily burdensome and heavy about it but just to be mindful so I'll bump into students in uh, Good Earth in Fairfax after the retreat or in Whole Foods or in a restaurant and, and I'm aware that that I'm being seen or related to as a teacher, mostly, not always. Some people can see me without the role, but it's it's more unusual. So I'm just pointing to some, there are many, many different ways that we can be seen, projected upon, uh, idealized or demonized. Right? So... Um, you know, of course, the bigger the fall, the bigger the, the bigger the, what's the word? Hmm? Bigger the pedestal, the bigger the fall, right? So that's also a not uncommon dynamic that someone will, you know, you'll be their beloved teacher, guide, mentor, however they see you, therapist, and, 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 um, Maybe there's some imperfect mirroring, some imperfect holding, some imperfect flexion. Or as, as you said, there's a. Maybe you're tired one day, and they're asking very long, difficult questions at the end of the class, and you get irritated, and it's devastating for them because they've seen you as this perfect, um, you know, figure that can that can accommodate any, any, anything that's demanded. So the the need to also be human in the role and and how that may disappoint people. And then, of course, there's a whole realm of countertransference of what happens with us in relationship to what's going on for them. I'm not going to go there right now. So I want us to do some inquiry around this and um, to see what this is bringing up for you. This might be something that you haven 't encountered much or thought much about. maybe you've thought about it a lot as a therapist or as a clinician in some ways. Um, but I want us to think about it in the role of teaching mindfulness, where the the power differential can can be uh, exacerbated, and to reflect on these questions what are the, the, what are the more difficult pro- projections for you uh, in the teacher role? So what are the difficult things? that can come to you in the teacher role. I'm, I'm going to do a little section later on, on working with difficult situations but um, just to reflect on this question, what are the difficult uh, projections or the ways students might relate to you? And how do you handle them? How do you handle when a student is um, challenging your authority, idealizing you? Falling in love with you. Um, how do you handle that? What supports do you need? What allows you to to work with that skillfully? Yeah. So, and sometimes when I'm um, uh, leading my teacher trainings, people will often choose to teach in pairs, especially if it's a particularly difficult, uh, uh, a difficult uh, client group, difficult population. So it so often helps mitigate some of that intensity of transference and some of the, you, know, you can you, you can have a support in that, in that dynamic, in that role. So again, um, let's do this in um, groups of three. So I'm going to ask you to stand and find someone you haven't worked with. And then once you've found your th- two other people, sit down. <coughs> Anybody need a third? So there's, th- you've got three there, right there? That doesn't matter, that's okay. So keep raising your hands if you need a third, there's two, at least two pairs, there's three, there's three pairs, so you, you three, the three pairs will make a six, will make a... So over by the window, there's... So raise your hand if you still need a, um, a group of three. Anybody else need a group of three? Maybe one, group of four. one group of four is okay. Are we having maths issue over there, or is that just? <laughs> 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 I see, and it's, and it's, you know, doesn't, it's not, a, not the end of the world if you work together. Do you need a? Do you have a group? Oh, she's leaving. I'm out of here. Okay, so we're going to take this in turns. Again, one person's going to talk. The other two are just offering generous listening, which is listening with full attention, not interrupting, you know, but showing full awareness of listening. You could be nodding, you could, you know, eye contact, um, but not diverting the, 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 the conversations and not asking questions, but you know, showing full awareness of uh, attention and listening. And uh, so one person will start whoever that would like to be. And uh, again, the questions are, what are the more difficult projections for you as a teacher? What are the more more difficult ways that you either have been related to in in your role as a teacher or as a a clinician or in a way of teaching mindfulness? Or what are your fears, perhaps? Or maybe you've had other teaching roles. What what have been the the more challenging uh, ways students have related to you how have you handled them, and what might support you handling uh, the difficult, these difficult, potentially difficult situations in the future? Is that clear? Does anybody, anybody have questions about that? OK, off you go. So we'll take, um, yeah, so, so, so I'll ring a bell. After we'll go, we'll do about four minutes. I'll ring a bell after four minutes, and then we'll go, each person will go for four minutes, four minutes, four minutes. I'll separate it with a bell. Okay, so bringing that to a close and just pausing for a moment. And again, just noticing what, what gets evoked as you talk and what gets evoked as you listen. Any sort of memories or shared experiences or compassion or dread or... Okay, so next person. Same theme. Okay, so coming to a close. Noticing what's here. Bringing awareness to Whatever emotions, getting evoked, memories, thoughts, feelings. Holding whatever's here with care, kindness, compassion, rather than judgment or self-judgment. And the last person, four minutes. So taking a few more minutes just to debrief that conversation and anything else that was stirred up from listening to each other. So a few minutes just debriefing about that experience and anything that you want to follow up from from what people were saying. Okay, We'll take about three minutes. If you'd like to um, thank your partners and come back to your seats. curious, we'll, we'll take a break in a minute, but curious to get some, some feedback, some harvest. What, was, what, was what comes up for you when you think about this topic, when you listen and you either are teaching, have been teaching, think about teaching, what, what issues around working with the dynamics of teacher-student relationship and all of that entails... Anybody like to share what's either been coming up for you or comes up for you? Yes. up for you around that, if anything. which brings up the issue around, you know, different populations. We're all working with different populations. When I'm teaching mindfulness in Juvenile Hall, you know, I'm going to be teaching with a specific awareness of that population and its need. When I'm teaching in a homeless shelter in San Francisco or I'm teaching, you know, VPs, you know, at uh, Apple, you know, I'm going to be very different awareness of needs. Dynamics, projections, um, and, 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 and adapt accordingly to the populations. Yeah. Sensitivity, yeah. Yes, I'm going to pass. we do the mic. I think it's on. In the middle there.
5: Um, we were talking a little bit about um, the need for disclosure mm-hmm. and when appropriate. Um, as a therapist, I lean on the side of as little as possible.
0: This is in therapy, or when you're teaching?
5: Oh, when I'm um, when I'm the therapist, mm-hmm. um, so I consider that the teaching role. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so to lean again uh, on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were talking about some people in our group who were mentors, mm-hmm. um, and even like. Sponsors, or you know that it would be more appropriate to then disclose, mm-hmm. um, and just like you were saying, just having that awareness of who's in front of you, right. when it's appropriate, right. when it's not, right. um, and how use- how useful that can be.
0: Yeah, and how it shifts the dynamic, you know. So I'll often have you know when I was doing when I was doing straight psychotherapy, and there would you know, I teaching a class down the hill of two hundred people and often clients would come by, I had no, you know, jurisdiction who who would come. And now would be quite I'm quite disclosing or can be when I'm teaching, not so much in the therapy chair. And then wh- what impact that has when you when you disclose. You know, sometimes it builds trust and builds connections, sometimes it's triggers safety issues or it, it shadows the idealisation, or you know, it's 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 complex, yeah. And the, and the skillfulness of it, yeah. I think generally, I mean, not, not not so much in the therapy, but in the teaching world, I think um, disclosure and talking about one's experience is really helpful. It Personalises, humanises the practice, and makes allows people to connect with you. And it's usually, what people find most significant when they what they take away is. Hearing how you grapple with the practice. Yeah, up here, next to you.
6: I'm too shy to use this one.
7: I'm a teacher and um, uh, I was really valuing what you were saying about having a teaching partner because it can be a very vulnerable experience to be alone with children and have transference take place. And then get taken home and then sort of things get distorted or blown out of proportion in a way and you have no real recourse unless you have another adult in the room with Uh you. Do you know what I mean? So Uh it's it's a really, I feel very grateful to have that but I really feel for other teachers who may not Uh and what came to mind as I was talking with my friends was um, how valuable it would be for all teachers to have some sort of support, where they could converse about their experiences in the classroom, mm-hmm. with this and other things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now there's definitely a, a role for team teaching for sure yeah. behind you.
6: I just was thinking as we were talking about how how many layers there are of this and how complicated it can be because there are sort of some very explicit uh, projections where people say I'm in love with you or when I work as a mediator people often uh, like to pretend that I'm a judge actually and tell me their stories and well Emily will decide Um, You say what you think and I'll say what I think and she'll decide and that's not and so there's an opportunity for me to be very explicit about that's not my role, so let's look again at what we're doing here. But there are so many things, I think, that happen under the surface, and I'm just really um, holding what you said about that job one is to uh, respond to all of it with kindness and compassion, because we don't know really what's going on. And I recently had an experience that left me just I have a client who just resists every single thing that I do, or second guesses me, or I send an email and she's like, I wish you would have said that, or I make a suggestion, no, we'll do it this way, everything is, and then the other day I said, this is so great, you're almost, you're so close to being done, we're almost about to get a judgment. She's like, does that mean I won't see you anymore? (laughs) Okay, so there's things going on, I think, Uh all the time that we don't know about.
0: All kinds of stuff going on, yeah. And to hold it, hold it with spaciousness and with kindness. And, yeah.
3: uh, I work in a very diverse uh, environment. Um, it's a small campus overseas and I'm a psychologist there. Um, and I realized working with people from different backgrounds um, it's quite interesting because um, all of these that we are talking about here may not apply. What what my assumption can be about a particular person may not apply to the next person, or may not be accurate at all. Uh, and it's constantly I'm really being humbled by uh, by learning uh, from people. From different background, mm-hmm. and uh, what I may assume as being idealization, for example, where a student, one student, may turn out to be actually them questioning me and 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 uh, uh, questioning even my competence, uh, mm-hmm. but I had perceived that as idealization. It's just mm-hmm. not really understanding where they come from and their language.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you just bring up a a much broader issue around working with different cultures and different communities and diverse populations and the need to understand the the different, to be sensitive to those cultural differences, especially if you're working with, you know, something you're working overseas, you said? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, it, but either way, working with any diverse community to, to understand the, how authority is held, how power is held, how projection, Varies in different cultures and different communities is really important, and to to be aware of one's own bias, one's own cultural bias, one's own ethnic bias, one's how how we perceive, the lens through which we perceive is not necessarily the one that is actually being expressed. So good, thank you. Hand over here.
8: Um, So for me, I'm an elementary school teacher. And I've had a big issue surrounding the kids wanting to be my friend. Um, youngest is grade three. They tend to latch on to me, and I become their therapist, their mother, their big sister, their best friend. And it's nice. In our group, we had a theme going on about you know being liked. And that feels really nice. But I do know as a teacher, I'm not there to be liked. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's endearing to me. And I have a real difficult time kind of separating the boundaries with them. Uh, they don't seem to get it. Even when I've sat them down <laughs> and had a you know long, drawn-out conversation, I've brought in other teachers. But for some reason, there's that transference and they just... I don't. I don't really know what to do about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You become a strong attachment figure for them, especially the younger they are. Yeah, and who knows what's going on in their home life that that's that you're supporting or making up for or representing. And. Um,
8: well, I do work at at a private school. So, um, well, I've worked at two private schools in the last few years. And a lot of the kids I've seen, their nannies come and pick them up, and they don't, I mean, I've spoken to them about, you know, their parents, and, you know, mommy and daddy, you know, you can do this and that, or whatever the conversation was. And, you know, mom's always away, and dad's always away, or mom would never do that with me. And so, yeah, there is a lot of that. Yeah. And I I hold it with kindness and compassion, because I remember myself as a student at that age, And I remember what it was like but at the same time I do have a role Mm -hmm. and I have to be very careful with my boundaries
0: yeah yeah and I think you bring up an important issue around being liked you know and the need to be liked you know and then bring up you know why teaching is such an interesting role and a metaphor is that it it will bring up all of our our unconscious stuff need to be liked need to be seen as caring or loving or as Needing to be useful, needing to feel valued, needing to be a value—you know—all the different ways that that you know we assume, or you know, our, our, our deficiencies, our egoic needs get subsumed into that role, and so we'll often override boundaries if that's the case. You know, because we, we don't want to be seen as being tough or as boundaried or as, you know, however it might be perceived or misperceived. So, but the more that you're conscious of it, the more likely you're not to act out of it. That's, that's the key. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And it's a whole particular, you know, when you're working with kids that age, it's a, there's a whole different level of dynamics going on around attachment and all kinds of things. Yeah. Hands raised. Yes. I once
9: taught a mindfulness class to eighth graders. And it was really hard. Um, there was only like seven of them. It was the at-risk students. Um, it was fifty minutes twice a week, and um, and at you know I, I had to change the curriculum because because they weren't responding to to what I, it was too innocent for them. Mm-hmm. And then um, I and I'm not a teacher, you know, like trained teacher. So classroom management was kind of new to me and. So pretty much I just had to be mean. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I had to be like, because they are giving me so much attitude and saying, you know, talking about drugs and everything, you know, everything that you could imagine 8th is talking about. And so finally, I, you know, and I guess I, I just had to give them the same kind of attitude back and then, and then they listened to me. They're like, whoa. <laughs> So I think if I were to go back in time, I would have sat down with them and said, "Hey guys, do you notice how and the only way you listen to me is when I you know, have to be strict and kind of you know, rude to you guys. Do you, do you see that?" And so I don't know if you guys could talk about that or like just the more challenging student populations and how to deal with classroom management.
0: Yeah. I should say, my, my, my uh, friend Rick Smith wrote a book called Conscious Classroom Management. It's a really great manual for teachers. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's not my domain of expertise. I'm happy to see what my colleagues have to say. But I think what's interesting and important is that what what they listen to is you showed up authentically. You showed up real, and that's what got their attention. You know, you're, you're, you're framing it as being a little attitude back, but actually it sounded like... The more that you were real and authentic in the room, the more they actually got their attention. So, and I think that's really true with with teenagers. You know, certainly when I'm in juvenile hall, I teach very differently. When I'm sitting up here at Spirit Rock, for sure. Um, you know, it's very real. I'm very self-disclosing, um, and. Um, hmm. Yeah, much more. I'm, there's a certain kind of accessibility and uh, friendliness and um, realness that, that's really necessary to reach, I would say, that audience for the most part. It's not all that's needed, but. Yeah. So, I th- and I think it also just points to this idea of when we're teaching, what role are we in and what persona do we put on, right? Or, what what person do we think we need to assume to teach this stuff, right? Maybe we've learned mindfulness here or through other teachers or through, you know, wherever you've learned mindfulness. And so you're going to be influenced by that. And, um, you know, we're all influenced by our teachers and we all sound like our teachers when we first start teaching because how else, you know, we're obviously going to imbibe what they've taught us. So when I first started teaching, I sounded like Joseph because he was my mentor and teacher for many years, Joseph Goldstein. And um, so between... And he's very sort of regal when he teaches and very um, very clear. And that was what I thought was important. So that's what I tried to emulate. And then I had my English conditioning, which is very reserved so I had this sort of, like, princely reserve as a teacher. <laughs> which, you know, was, like, not so great, really. But, you know, what do you do? You start with what you've got. And, um, you know, and I got pushback about that. And, and eventually that kind of shell, that kind of persona, shattered. And, it's, and then that, and after, at some point after that, I had much more fun teaching, because I was myself. So, you know, I think with anything, we put on a certain kind of, you know, a certain kind of robe or attitude and over time we become more and more real and more and more authentic and more and more selves, which allows more and more people to relate to us. Because right? when anybody's in role, it's a limitation, we feel it, it doesn't, we, we, you know, we, when, you, certainly when I would go to study with someone, I want to feel like this, I want to feel that this person's real, not just in some kind of, well now we're going to follow our breath people, you know. Like, that's just so not interesting to me. I want someone who's real, who's talking to me like a human being. <laughs> not like some new age avatar. You know.
7: <laughs>
0: so to know what kind, of, what kind of persona that you think, you, either you put on or you think you need to be to teach this stuff. Right? You know, I think what I've seen over my practice over these years is it allows me to become more and more real. And teaching is about being more and more real and authentic and personal, personal and personable. So, Any last comments before we take a break? Yeah, okay.
9: In terms of an MBSR class um, in a community with just a wide variety of people in your class, what kind of persona do you put off for that setting?
0: don't put a persona on or okay <laughs> you know you you want to look at the question right so um, you know it you want you know i mean ideally you're showing up authentically as yourself that's also attuned to the population that you're teaching right so when i go to juvenile hall it's not like i become somebody different it's just but i show a different side of myself you know when i'm teaching in a in a company you know i 'll use different language and you know adjust to the cultural norms and what 's interesting and useful for them you know when i 'm dealing with kids or inmates who are in solitary a lot of the day then i 'm teaching to that need right? so um, so if you can let go of a persona be yourself but be attuned to the cultural you know, needs of the diverse populations you're working with. Okay, so let's take a break. We'll come back, let's take a 10 minute break. We'll come back at 4.20. And please keep to the silence. So a couple of things that came up just to wrap up this conversation, um, that we were talking, my colleagues and I, around things that affect the the role and the transference um, is gender, right? So as a male teacher versus a female teacher, there'll be different kinds of projection and transference. Age has an impact. So I started teaching when I was. I don't know, early 30s, and I was very self-conscious because most people were much older than me when I was teaching. And so there's that whole issue around authority and taking the seat and whether you feel worthy because of, or not because of age or other, other things. Um, so just to be mindful of the different kinds of projection and transference. Right? So I have a colleague who's Sri Lankan, and she's very mindful of the different kinds of projections she gets as a woman of color versus a white man versus an older white man. Right? So just to be mindful of the different uh, things that come your way, depending on you know, who you are. So and then just to think about um, other things that create more uh, or impact the transference. Uh, relationship and so um, what I've noticed is things like when you're not uh, when you're not familiar when someone's from out of town when you get a guest speaker who's visiting from New York or LA or somewhere that lends itself a certain status or credibility rather than the person just down the road who's you know working at the shelter and you know around the corner um uh, how much you reveal or don't reveal has a certain impact on on how you are perceived um, the the size of this the class that you're teaching i noticed the, the 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 transference changes if you're teaching a class of five versus teaching a class of 200 right? so it lends a certain authority the larger the class um, and whether you're known or not whether you're an author whether you're you know you're known in a certain way. And again, how all these different things affecting the teacher-student dynamic, just to be mindful of them. All right, so I'm going to shift gears because I want to move into something that's um, both practical and something that's very relevant both to our own practice and to working with uh, uh, students both one-on-one and in small groups and large groups. And that is the whole field of working with people in difficult states, particularly when people get dysregulated, when people are experiencing too much intensity. And this is one of the... the, the, Too much intensity that's hard to be with, that's hard to contain, that's hard for the person to hold. And so this is often one of the biggest fears for new teachers, is what happens if someone freaks out? What happens if someone loses it? What happens if people feel so much grief and loss it's, they're inconsolable? Or what if they feel too much fear and terror they pass out? Or what if they feel like they're just losing control? What am I going to do in that situation? How do I deal with it when I'm like that? You know, and, and how much harder might it be if I'm going to have to work with somebody in front of a class? Right? And it happens. You know, um, how I was teaching in a class in Google. Um, so this is you know, and as mindfulness continues to grow, and as the myth of mindfulness continues to grow, and its benefits and what it will do for you, you know, happiness, reduce stress, reduce depression, uh, increase uh, well-being and job satisfaction, or whatever the the latest report is, you know, in Huffington Post about what it can do. Um, uh, people come with different expectations. And what often what will happen is, as you know, when you, when you meditate, it creates space. When space is created, things arise. If you're a gardener, you know that. You till the soil, you create space, you plant, and things arise. That's what happens in meditation. And we know the congestion of our lives when our lives are so busy and full and there's so much stuff happening, but there's no room for it to, to come out to be processed. Right? Or if you're working with a population like veterans or um, people in prison or any population that that's, uh, has a higher incidence of trauma, the, the conditions are more likely for that, for that trauma to arise. And so um, it's uh, important for us to learn how to work with our own difficult states, the, the, the more intense realms of emotion, and how to find balance, how to find a way to hold and, and, and stay regulated right? and use that experience and skill to work with others, right? to know your limits, to know your capacity. And, of, and at times, there'll be, you know, as there can happen in retreat, uh, where we'll refer people out, you know, where either the retreat container is not the right situation for people to be dealing with the intensity of what they're going through or we'll be making referrals to them post-retreat for therapy or psychiatric support or what other kind of intervention that might help them, uh, trauma-based therapist or something. So it's good to have um, both experience in your own practice of how to work with difficult states. It's good to have some kind of resource referral network so you can refer people to people who are skilled in that domain if you're not, Um, and to not be surprised. (laughs) Because there's... This line from Upandita, you said, any thought can arise in any moment, at any time. And I would say, any emotion can arise in any person at any time. We just don't know. You're sitting there happily minding your own business, following the breath, and suddenly, who knows what comes up. I was sitting on a long retreat. Uh, I was in the middle of my long retreat practice years, and I was on my way to Burma to become a monk, and I was, you know, on my fast track to enlightenment, and had a, spiritual ego the size of this room and I thought I was like the bee's knees in in, in meditation and I was maybe a third of the way through this three month retreat and uh, someone asked a benign question about something about childhood or abandonment and suddenly this whole early trauma erupted that I had no cognizance whatsoever in all the years I'd been meditating all the years of my life incredibly painful completely flattened me I got quite dysregulated. It was very hard to practice. Didn't go to Burma. Got chronic fatigue. Went through a very difficult, dark year of the soul. Not a dark night. That's that's the lucky ones. And um, uh, learned how to how to work with my own trauma and how to regulate in those intense uh, experiences. And and studied uh, with Peter Levine, Somatic Experiencing, uh, which is a wonderful mindfulness. I, I think of it as a mindfulness-based uh, therapeutic modality that really helps people learn how to titrate and work skillfully with trauma. So partly what I'm going to be doing this afternoon, this latter part, is just giving a little framework for how to work with strong emotion in ourselves, how to work with, it, with others. And so you have some basic structural framework to uh, allow the person or yourself to come back to some kind of ground or balance in the midst of the intensity. So um, I teach this a lot to clients and students um, to help them learn how to find some sense of ballast in the midst of intensity. So, um, how many people here have emotional intensity? Have gone through difficult states? right? Okay, not everybody, but most of you. Okay, and the other ones, it's coming, it's coming soon to, a, <laughs> to a zafu <Zaffer> near you. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll, I'm not sure which one. Maybe I'll do this one. So I can do a little um, diagram here of. Uh, how to work with this or not as the case may be we'll see if I stay regulated while I <laughs> 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 I'm going to use that one over there that looks far more user friendly <laughs> that is hilarious yeah let's bring it out let's bring it out actually no, that would be good if you, if you guys want to move because then I won't be blocking anybody's way if you, if you just leave it there actually it's going to fall down <laughs> like the Laurel and Hardy show. I think it needs to be (laughs) propped against the wall. Let's put it back against the (laughs) wall. All right. So, what's happening here? Thanks. Okay. So, this is a model um, that I learned when I did some somatic experiencing training. And it's a very, I find it a very simple and elegant uh, model of what happens when we go through intensity, right, of which you might know from this retreat or from other retreats. So uh, one of the principles of, uh, of somatic experiencing is in a healthy uh, psyche in a healthy mm, state of uh, being human, we are oscillating or pendulating uh, every few seconds or few minutes between in different ways you could frame this, expansive and contracted, up and down, high and low, The nature of the universe is it's constant, just like the breath, expanding and contracting and our psyches and our internal states are somewhat similar. And so um, uh, you may notice this in you sit down in meditation and you take a breath and you feel expansive and then you notice, oh, there's a layer of sadness here. And you're with that for a while and it passes and you notice a bird song and it brings you out and you feel a sense of, oh, but it's so nice to at spirit rock. Oh, but my heart feels really heavy. Right? So there's this kind of a, there's this natural ebb and flow as we go through our day right? of easy, difficult, up and down. And um, when we get, when intense stuff comes up, feelings, emotions, trauma, Um, or difficult mind states, what happens is often we get stuck, um, the nature of pain, the nature of trauma, the nature of intensity, is it sucks the attention into it. And this is something that we've, uh, this has been a great learning for the Vipassana teaching community and the Vipassana community in general, is generally when the instruction, when something comes up in your meditation, what's the instruction? Go into it, right? Feel it, you know, penetrate it, go right into the core of it, right? So, when things are difficult and we give that instruction, what happens is we go into it, and the very going into it can actually intensify and be uh, mm, activating and triggering, right? We can go into a kind of a vortex, what, what, what Peter calls a trauma vortex. Where we lose ability to feel, this is what this is. This would be uh, what I call the healing vortex, and this is the trauma vortex. And this is also the grounding, uh, stable support we have, and I'll talk about what that is in a minute. When we go into it with our with our laser-like mindful attention, we can often get sucked in particularly with something like anxiety and fear, when we go into it, often it just exacerbates it and we get overwhelmed. And so this idea of being overwhelmed is a very important criteria for the when and how to work with difficult states. So one of the understandings that Peter has around um, uh, difficult experience and trauma is when we become overwhelmed, Uh, We lose present time awareness and we start to be re-triggered and re-traumatized if we're back in that same scenario. We lose present, this is present time awareness here, and we get sucked back in, particularly if the trauma or the emotion has some earlier uh, residue, earlier memories, which often they do, then we get sucked back, we often regress, we lose that adult Present time awareness, we lose that ability to stay resourced. Right? So, um, so as a as a as a vipassana community, we've learned that this instruction not so helpful. That, and this is why, and you will hear it in the instructions, in the way that we teach, um, that you know it may be phrased in different ways. If the thing that you're being present to is too difficult go to something neutral right so if you're experiencing chronic pain and it's too much to be with which it often is because that's why it's chronic pain the instruction is to primarily be with that which is easier to be with right where in the body is not in chronic pain right when you shift the attention away from the intensity to the feet often to the legs if that's not part of the trauma or the pain or to sounds, or you open the eyes and you uh, look out the window and you come into present time awareness that's not part of the pain, it allows the nervous system to unwind, it allows the nervous system to relax a little, so you feel more resourced, right? This is, this is the resourcing uh, part of the, the pendulation. Then when the pain erupts again, physical or emotional, you have a little more balance. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, this is this is a revolutionary skill to have because the nature of pain is it becomes a vortex, right? This is the trauma vortex. The nature of it it pulls us into it because of because of the nature of its intensity and because of the 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 pull. I think for the psyche to have healing and resolution, right? But going into it without a skilled, balanced presence we drown, basically. Right? We get overwhelmed. We get overwhelmed here. So, um, so whether this is happening in you or a student, you want to be able to, to know uh, when you're in this kind of vortex, when you're in this cycle. Which means, and the criteria is, you're overwhelmed. You're unable to be with it. You feel like you're drowning. You're losing present time awareness. And you don't feel like you have the resources or ballast to hold it, contain it, right? And you've probably seen it in yourself. You've probably seen it when we may have worked with people in groups at times. Um, you've certainly probably seen it with your, uh, your therapy clients and whatnot. So the resolution is, um, and just to kind of backtrack for a second. So this work is, and how many people are familiar with somatic experiencing? I'm sure a few of you, yeah, quite a few of you great. So this work came out of um, Peter studying uh, animals in nature and how they recover from stress and fear and trauma. So you have like um, the deer here, you know, who are you know relatively feeling relatively safe, but there are predators here. There are coyotes and there are mountain lions, and sometimes they get taken out. And there are humans who are you know we're predators, even though we're pretty benign as we slow walk. Um, but, you know, every now and then you'll see that the deers get startled, you know, by something, and they'll run, and they'll find, you know, a safe place, and then they'll shake. They'll shake out the fear. They'll shake out the trauma. You'll see the muscles, those really tight muscles, or you'll see them shivering and shaking. That's that's a, the, um, an organism's natural way for releasing trauma, and releasing tension, releasing the fear. Right, And then once they've done that, they relax, and they go back to eating grass as if nothing ever happened, even if... You know, and it's amazing when I watch those nature documentaries of, you know, zebras and the wildebeest in, in Africa, and, and, and they, they live with predators within sight. And yet they're able to stay relaxed. Like, imagine if you had predators and you didn't know whether you were going to be killed that day. Like, we would be nervous wreck. We would die of fear, right? But they have a way of naturally releasing the trauma through shaking, through uh, other ways of releasing through the body that we have often learned to inhibit. Um, you know, I mean, I've I've seen this and I've been exposed to this, where you know someone will say be in a car accident or or have traumatic news, and one of the natural responses is to shake, shake with fear, shake with release. It's a post-trauma release. And someone will say, "Oh no, stop shaking! No, no, no! Just you know, pull it together, or you know, contain yourself, or breathe and relax. (laughs) Relax, (laughs) right?" And so there's all these different ways, or we have we have some mental idea of how we should be, and so we inhibit those natural stress uh, releases or those ways that we try and naturally resource. and we do we do this somewhat instinctively. We might go for a walk. We might hold. A, we might we ask for a hug, or we might drink tea. Or there's different ways that we can come back into this healing vortex. Um, but often that gets that gets thwarted, and so um, uh, so the understanding is um, because the nature of, of as I've said because of, of, of intensity and trauma and emotional pain sucks us into a place where we often lose awareness and lose that grounding, we need to find a way to come back to, to, to present time reality because often when we're in em- emotional intensity and trauma, we're not in present time. We've gone back. We've regressed in some way. And so we're looking to find a way to ground. Right? So it's why we often say if you're feeling some strong emotion that feels too difficult to be with, notice somewhere else in the body that feels grounding, right? So for a lot of people, unless unless there's the trauma related to the feet, often the feet is the most grounding, the legs, the big muscle groups in the legs, the buttocks, again, depending on the, what the trauma is about, what the emotional intensity about, usually the lower half of the body and the the outer extremities of the body, usually more grounding, the the emotional intensity is usually in the face and in the torso. So can you feel your hands? Can you feel your legs? Can you feel your feet? You ask the person or you ask yourself, is there anywhere in the body that feels safe? Is there anywhere in the body that feels grounded? Is there anywhere in the body that doesn't feel part of that activation? So if you're working with someone, you ask that or you direct them, you say, can you feel your feet? That wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be the first thing I'm asking, but might be, you know, so, so someone comes into the room and you're having a conversation or a dialogue or they're in, in the middle of a uh, you know, question and answer period the, after the meditation and they start talking about some activation, some fear, some intensity that happened in the class. And um, you know, they start to feel uh, overwhelmed and, or panicky or distressed by the intensity. And, and so, um, again, if there's, if there's a sense of overwhelm, first encourage the person to find ground, to find neutral, to find something that helps down-regulate the intensity. Right? So you come over into the healing vortex, somewhere in the body, right? first point. Sometimes there's nowhere in the body that feels safe. There's nowhere in the body that feels grounded. So then you shift wider. Right? So if the person's got their eyes closed, you ask them to open their eyes. Can they hear the sounds? Can they look around the room? Can they find something pleasant in the room? I'll, have, I'll often have people look outside the room. If you have a window, if you have a nice and something to look at—nature, trees. Um, so right now, like, so, so imagine that you're feeling charged about something. You're feeling uh, um, uh, overwhelmed with something, and then you know. So, for example, just bring your attention to your feet or to your legs. Right? Can you notice? Your sit bones. As I'm talking, right? maybe maybe as I'm talking, this is stimulating for you. This is bringing up some memory. You know, when I talk about the trauma I went through, I feel it in my nervous system. It's you know, even though it's somewhat resolved, there's always residues. Right? So, helping helpful to feel the feet, the legs. Right? Sometimes the breath. Usually, the breath is caught up in the activations and not the best resource. Sometimes it is. And then uh, look around the room. And when you're directing people to orient, which is orienting to present time away from the, the intensity, from uh, you orienting to something pleasant. So I'll have so look around the room right now and find something pleasant to look at. And I'll ask them. So OK, so I'm going to ask someone, what, so um, who's, who's doing this? <laughs> OK, so, so look around the room, find something pleasant. The trees, OK. So look look at the trees. So what are you noticing as you look at the trees? Uh-huh. So what do you like about the trees? What's pleasing for you? Soft. Soft. Uh-huh. Relaxed. The trees, or you? The trees. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. So, what are you noticing in your body as you look at the trees? Can
5: internally resonate with that and
0: find the same thing internally. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So you'll look for, usually when people start, when, you, when you're reorienting their attention away from the distress to something that's pleasing, it allows a little relaxation in the nervous system, allows some registering of some ease in the body, which is, becomes a resource. Right? So what was previously a, a jacked-up hyperactive system, there's maybe a little, you know, maybe the, maybe the eyes soften or maybe the belly releases a little bit or something that feels a little warmer in the body. Right? So when we get move into fight-flight mode, which is when we get into this trauma vortex, right? The the blood, you know, people go pale because the, the blood moves in from the extremities into into the muscle groups. Um, so so the the sometimes when people start feeling resourced, you feel like the blood comes back to the face. There's a little relaxation, the blood flow is easier. Right. So you find some way to orient, right? And that may take 10 seconds, it may take 10 minutes. Um, it, may, it takes as long as it takes. You know? um, so when this happens in, in a group, in a small group, which happens fairly frequently, or it happens in a big room, um, as a teacher, you know, um, and of course you're always making the judgment call, um, do I take this offline with this person, or do I work with them in the group as a way of both uh, providing a teaching for the group? So in a small group, I'll often do this in a group where something comes up and we'll do this kind of work live and it's also a way to teach other people how to regulate, right? Because right now, Joe is feeling overwhelmed but you know, next week it could be Mary and so I, so I want to use this you know, with this person's permission as a way of um, supporting them but also giving people the you know, a live demonstration of how to do this for themselves. Does that make sense? So, um, you know, sometimes you have a choice about taking it offline. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're in the middle of it and you're holding a class and someone's dysregulating and that's what requires the attention. And you uh, find ways to uh, bring them to some kind of regulation so so they can feel some ease so you can carry on with the class. Or if you have an assistant, the assistant can attend to them. Um, So... So this is the first stage. So you notice when someone is going into this fight or flight mode or freeze, where, there's, where they're feeling overwhelmed, you try to bring them into some way into the, into the present moment orientation, into a healing vortex, um, into somewhere in, the, in their body or in the environment that feels safe, that feels grounding. By shifting attention away from the trauma vortex, it allows that, that activation to settle a little. Maybe a lot, but sometimes just a little. Um, and uh, the, 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 so what happens in, in the process of this trauma vortex is that natural swinging of ebbing and flowing, expanding, contracting gets frozen, gets locked. And so at some point we want to reintroduce that flow back. Um, and so, and again, often we say this in the instructions, when something's too intense shift to neutral. When you feel like the intensity has subsided, then you may uh, shift your attention back to that emotion or back to that pain and see if you see if there's greater capacity to be with it. Maybe you just touch it for a moment and then you come back to neutral. Right? So if it's chronic pain, you touch it for a moment, you feel the overwhelm, and you come back to feeling grounded in the feet or the sounds. Right? Or if the emotion is really strong, and it's subsided, you, you, know, you take your attention back there, you feel it for a moment. If it's okay, you spend more time with it. If it feels suddenly you get another wave, then you come back to the, the healing resource. Right? So you, you keep coming back to grounding. Right? So what you're doing, and why, why I love this work, and why I think it's so empowering, is you're teaching people how to regulate themselves in a very practical, immediate, experiential way that they can do this work without you. And I, my experience is, people can learn this work very quickly. Obviously, if someone has extensive trauma, then you need a lot of skilled help to really, for them, f- to be able to really help them walk back in here without drowning. Right? That takes a lot of skill. And I'll often refer people out to, to, to somatic experiencing therapists if they feel like they need, you know, much longer uh, work to, to 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 heal through specific trauma or PTSD. Um, so, so as a teacher, you know, I'll often walk people through this process, particularly in a small group, sometimes in the big room, and I'll, um, I'll feel comfortable leaving them when they have sufficient grounding here. We might have gone a couple of loops back in there. But I'm going to mostly leave them back in here to move on to somebody else or to move on to the rest of the teaching, right? So you, you you sense that they're grounding, right? You may check back in with them later in the class. You certainly check in with them at the break or you check in with them after the class, um, <clears throat> and then you're you're teaching them when they go home that you how where is this in your life? Where where is the place that you feel grounded and resourced and and uh, able to not able to feel resilient enough to handle this, right? So this might be um, physical contact. This might be hot baths. This might be friends. This might be a therapist. This might be nature. This might be um, body work. This might be, you know, anything that's 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 um, uh, soothing and pleasing to the to the nervous system, right? which is might be an education in itself. People, some people may have never even thought, what do you mean? Pleasing to my nervous system, you're a weirdo. <laughs> you know, anything that feels nice—bubble bath, you know, chocolate, um, holding someone's hand, physical contact, body work. Um, you know, and so for everybody, everyone has their own resource, right? Um, listening to relaxing music, doing yoga nidra. There's many, many things that are resourcing,
7: right?
0: And then to know, and then to 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 re- keep reiterating that when someone goes in here the criteria they're looking for is whether they can stay present to it or whether the intensity feels like it's overwhelming and you lose that present time capacity to hold it okay? so that's the criteria that's the main criteria um, class dismissed i no, just <laughs> <laughs> so there's some some basic Principles, um, questions about that? Yes. Do you have anything to say about the, um, I mean, some of us are not therapists. Right. So, uh, they work obviously, with a lot of people, who are uh, traumatized because they're getting forced. Hmm. And, uh, but I am very clear of hearing my skill set. Right. right yeah so you know first and foremost you want to practice this yourself right we all get distressed we all feel stress we all feel emotional charge we often can feel intensity at times feel overwhelmed at times feel really reactive right so you want to practice this first you don't do this with anybody until you really practice this yourself right so the next time you get triggered which might be like in 10 minutes you know the next time you get fearful or, or rageful or or you know you feel grief or loss or intense physical pain or even even not even that intense just to play with it notice the phys- notice the pain notice notice where you feel the emotion notice the, the sensations and then just to play with it, you go, okay, so there's, there's fear and my throat's locking up or I'm feeling intense anxiety and I've got this fluttering in my belly. What else is here? What else can I notice that's not the fear or the anxiety? Let me first go to my body. Is there anywhere in my body that doesn't feel afraid and fearful? Oh yeah, I'm noticing my ankles actually and I can feel like my heels and that feels really uh, soothing actually to feel the ground, right? Maybe my hands feel kind of big and spacious, right? So you feel that. Or you go, wow, no, my, actually my whole body is really, really anxious. I, I, that feels very unsafe, okay? So look around the room. Like, is there something somewhere in the environment that feels, you know, that's not the anxiety? Oh yeah, I'm at Spirit Rock. Oh yeah, the Buddha. Oh yeah, there's trees out there. Oh, it's a summer day. Oh, it's green. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh yeah, I love, I love nature. And, there's, and you notice a little relaxation. So you play with that, and then and then from that place of ease or relaxation, then you go. Okay, can I can I hold that spaciousness and just take a little look at at the at the fear? And you just you, just, you touch the outer layer, right? The, there's another uh, metaphor that that, um, that uh, Peter Levine uses of the slinky, right? So this is our psyche, and maybe. Maybe our emotional charge and maybe some trauma is here, right? So so the mind comes in and goes, oh, I want to fix that. Let's, you know, get the spade out and let's dig it out. And, you know, and of course what happens is you pull the middle slinky and it just kind of bounces all over the place, right? So if this is the beautiful green uh, trees of nature, you know, hopefully more beautiful than that, Uh and this is, um, uh, you know, it doesn't quite, yeah, so this is the outer layer of the anxiety, right, a little mild anxiety, right, you, you, you're, you're, you're resourcing and in, in, in in, in appreciating nature, and then you touch this for a moment, you feel the, the fluttery in the belly, and you immediately come back, you touch the fear and you immediately come back to feeling grounded. And then you touch it again, because it was OK the first time. And you hang out a little longer. Oh, it's not as bad as I thought. But I'm still going to make sure I'm breathing, and make sure my feet are on the ground. Oh, and let me just take a little longer. And I can actually feel that, yeah, it's intense. And I'm, but I'm still going to really be mindful of that which is not the fear. Right? So, so that's what you practice. And so you do this over time. By the time you get to here, you've released so much tension and fear and distress that when you get to the core, it's not a huge explosion. Right? The reason we get overwhelmed is because we go too quickly, and the reason why meditation is dangerous, <laughs> the health warning, is because it takes us right here right And people come to meditation because they want to heal this, and they don't know they don't even know like I didn't know why I was such a vociferous meditator was because my psyche was wanting healing, and it went straight to there in the silence and I got overwhelmed because I hadn't done the slow work of peeling layer of layers of the onion of right so that's that's the that's the thing to be mindful of when we're teaching mindfulness in in our now you know mainstream culture where people are you know getting one all the goodies and the benefits is they also don't realize that when we meditate we open ourselves up to everything including you know our humanness and our pain and our wounding and our trauma and our losses and our grief our grief unresolved grief and right so so that's why it's really good to have this skill and um, so when you're like teaching a you know a class you know mindfulness class and you're talking about mindfulness of motion you give a little of this orientation right you're not claiming to be a therapist you're not claiming to be a somatic experiencing practitioner but you're just saying you know there'll be times when you're meditating And you'll feel emotional intensity, physical intensity, and it feels too much. And so if that's the case, you just find something else that's easier to be with. You're not ignoring it. It's a conscious shifting of the attention to something easier that allows a little calming of the nervous system of the body. And then, when that's settled, you might take another look. Or you may choose, you know, this is not the right day. I'm just going to stay with the breath because it's easier. And I'm, I'm aware that there's some anxiety, but I'm not going to, this is not the time because I know I've got to go to a meeting right after this class. So I'm going to just use the breath to stay present. Right? Does that help? Should we get the microphone, maybe?
2: I'm shy, too. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking of somebody in a group that I facilitate that um, had a bad experience, I think, with meditation or deep relaxation. uh, And she won't be in the group when we do it at all. And so I'm wondering a gentle way to invite her to try to be with the experience again.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, she, I don't know what happened.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, you might trust her own intuitive wisdom <laughs> and let her do what she needs to do. Um, and... Um, you know, obviously the more you know about what happened, the more you will have skills to, to maybe mitigate or navigate that, right? So, um, you know, for instance, when I'm working with veterans, it's mostly eyes open. It's very short meditations. It's very grounded. Um, and um, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, cognizant of whatever their issue is or try to be and, and, and adapt So short, you know. Maybe for her, it's you know, her her eyes are open, um, and she has permission to leave the room or the space at any time she wants. And um, or maybe you do a session offline, and you meditate with her one on one, and you do it for a minute, and you check in. How was that? Okay, Mm. baby steps. Right. So um, yeah, and for some people, that you know, if there's something deeply Unresolved beneath the surface. That may not be the right mode. I mean, she might, she, you know, she might be intuitively knowing this is going to be, this is going to take me too quickly here. I'm out of here, either because I don't want to go there, or because I'm scared of there, or because I don't have the resources, right? So you might explain to her a little bit of this. You know, if, if it gets too much, open your eyes, look for something beautiful in the room. You know things like that. So you're giving her resources and, and alternatives. Yeah. Can
10: I use your mic first? Um, yeah. Thank you. So I was oh sorry. I was just asking. I was sort of uh, sending a note in the middle of class to Bob, and I was saying I was asking him how frequently in the beginning MBSR classes that he's seen people get severely dysregulated. And um, he said, very small amount. And it's the same with me, with like the thousands of beginning students and classes that I've had and all of the meditations. It's not a very common occurrence at all. Some populations, it's much more likely to occur. And that's why Mark is saying all the stuff about how to work with different populations. But in the everyday, I don't feel like it's that a common of occurrence one of the things i notice is that people's ability to protect themselves is very powerful people will go only as deeply as they feel safe and if they're in the middle of a group and they don't know people or even a few weeks they're not going to go so i just don't want you to be scared like oh no i'm teaching mindfulness and i have to um have to know how to do this really perfectly well. I think he's giving you this fantastic tool that will help in the event of doing it, and also can help yourself. Um, but but it's not it, it, anyway. You get, I made my point. So, and yeah.
0: you know, I probably teach this because um, it's often what people fear the most. You know, what if someone freaks out? What do I do? You know, what if I freak out? What do I do? <laughs> right on retreat, right? And so, um, and you know, as as Diana's speaking to, this doesn't have to be very intense to use this to, to, for the usefulness of this model, right? It could be, um, you know, just could be, you know, someone loses a loved one or a friend and there's grief and. You want to help them find ways of not drowning in the grief, so it doesn't have to be traumatic in that sense, right? Or anxiety is a really common one. Someone gets on a plane, and they've been told by their mindfulness instructor just to be with whatever comes up, and they, they they're present to their anxiety, and that anxiety makes their, that that mindfulness makes the anxiety way more intense because it can. When you bring awareness to something, it can intensify it. Not always. And so when you're flying, like a friend of mine, uh, she writes to all her friends and she asks them to send her things to do on the plane while she flies, right? She knows nothing about somatic experiencing, but she knows that when she flies, she's going to go here. And so her friends send her books and tapes and games all to stay here so she can regulate herself. Right? It's the same thing. So this can be pretty mild, right? and certainly you're going to be having plenty of people with chronic pain and physical pain, and at the same time it's like, how do you make that bearable? You make that bearable by... Imp- this, why, why I like this model is it's empowering, which saying you have the power to move and shift your attention wherever you want, and that is incredibly empowering and um, gives people a lot of resources, so, yes, at the front here. I can think
1: of combat veterans where they struggle
4: with finding anything in the room, and it's going to be like one of the vet centers I'm imagining. I can't think of anything pleasing in the room. <laughs> so. I mean, hopefully they have a window. You know, so, oh, okay.
0: Yeah, so it's often out the window. Can you see the sky? Can you see the clouds? Can you see? Um, you know, you may bring flowers into the room. You know, mm-hmm. if that's the case, you know. So there is something aesthetic. It doesn't it? Doesn't always have to be pleasing. You know, I mean, just being in the room as opposed to being back in the in the memory. That itself is regulating, right? Can you can you can you see the patterns in the wood? Can you see your shoelaces? Right? Can you see the reflection on the glass? Right? It's just, can you stay here? both in the, it's the two main things, in the present moment and not back in, t- in the distress, right? That's, that's, the, so you're shifting the attention that allows that down-regulating, right? So, Thank you. Yeah. Go for it. Got um, it. So,
2: is it okay to share another resource? Yes, go um, for it, yeah. So, Lisa Navaretti has done, she does what's called Seeking Safety. She works with folks that have substance abuse and alcohol issues, and she does a very similar grounding um, and anybody can do it. She says janitors, the secretary, anybody, and um, it's very very similar sitting in the chair having your feet. You ask a number of questions. What's the color in the room? Uh You know, you just get them their eyes open sort of and so um, you can go online and, and look that up. And uh, I think she has videos and things mm-hmm. like that on it too. So she has a list of questions. Yeah. Um, so we um, did a, taught that a lot in mental health centers. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, a, it's a good resource. Yeah. But it's very similar to what you're talking yeah. about.
0: Yeah. And again, I might teach this, you know, when I'm in a, in a company, I'll teach this to someone who's nervous about presenting. I'll teach them about going into a conflictual meeting. I'll teach them about this when they're going to present to the board. You know, and it's just, it's, it's just simple grounding, resourcing techniques. Right? It happens to be good on the deep end of things, but it's also, you know, anytime you're nervous and distressed and being with that is, is triggering, then you learn how to ground, right? which is, you know, as we, as we do a lot in the practice, be in your body. Be in your feet. Be in your legs. Be in your sit bones. Be in your hands. Be in your breath, or whatever it is that's grounding. That's not the, not the anxiety or the fear. You know, you can do it in the car when you're in traffic. You know, it's simply softening your belly. You know, and if your mind's spinning out about uh, getting somewhere late, it's like, okay, well that's true. And what's happening now? Oh, it's a beautiful summer day. Wow, how, how nice is that? So you just, it's, it's all skillful means to how to be at ease in the present with whatever's happening. Just, I want to give you the, the deeper end of things. So, some hands over here. Yeah.
4: Um, I just wanted to say that knowing the tools that you're suggesting really do work. I, um, I um, <clears throat> had a yoga student once in just a yoga class that had an ab reaction. She just started having an anxiety attack mm-hmm. in the class. And I knew through iRest, Yoga Nidra, I had read about ab reactions and what to do, but I never had experienced one in any of my iRest classes. But you know, I just did exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just had her <clears throat> ground in her feet, you know, Tadasana, strong mountain, and, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to do all this and still maintain the regular class. without other people knowing what's going on but she um, couldn't stay stable in her feet so I saw her lying down so I just went over to her and and just put a hand on her and told her she was in a safe place and Uh to breathe and just stayed with her you know and just kept going back to her and and touching her and and it worked and later on she did take the I rest class and um, she was never able to really fully go into the situation. She'd been a missionary in Africa, and some PTSD had happened. But what she came to really know was the resource, mm-hmm. the safe place. Yeah. And so I encouraged her that every time that this arose, it was actually a good thing. Every time the memory arose, mm-hmm. because she could meet it, just like you're saying, a little bit more, a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Good. And she recently sent me an email and said that it's really just changed her life having those tools. Yeah. She is. listens to an IRS tape every day. But
0: yeah, it is life-changing. You know, and this resource over here could be, as you're speaking, it could be a memory. Um, it could be um, a color. It could be, um, you know, some... I think in DBT, they, there's a practice where you... Um, you in, say, say you're having a beautiful experience on a hike, and you really internalize that experience. You have a felt sense of that. So you can recall that when you're in some kind of stressful or distressful state. So that that's also can be a resource, can be an inner resource, can be a mental resource. Right? I prefer the physical reality resources, just because it's more grounding present time. But you know, it's, it's whatever works for you. So hands, two over there.
5: This is along those lines. Is there anybody that you can recommend that's working really specifically with, with visual resources for this?
0: Anybody who's, who's using visual resources?
5: Who's, yeah, who's developed sort of um, how to use the eyes or visual memory to the extent that maybe somatic processing has been developed, mm. or is it a subset thereof?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a whole field of EMDR, which is using the eyes for for um, for trauma and desensitization, and so. But I don't know. Do you know any Brent using that?
11: Advanced somatic experiencing training.
0: The advanced somatic experiencing training you get more uses of lots
11: there. of visualization, uh-huh. and eye work, and imagery.
0: Yeah, yeah. There you go. So the person behind you in the check show.
3: When you first draw the, the loop and you said, when we have a, a, a intense experience, what's the instruction? And I felt that you know was going into it. Huh? So should we give this instruction of going into it and having the safe or the neutral part? from the beginning of a meditation, or is it something that we will go into it as long as the time or or the process goes on? So, when should we get this instruction of having the neutral part of your body there?
0: Yeah, right away, I mean, Diana did it in the the meditation when she led, and the, the easiest, simplest version of this is if it 's too much go to something neutral if it 's too much go to something neutral right if and, and, and that whether it 's physical emotional mental if it 's too hard to be with if it 's causing too much pain if it 's too whatever it is too difficult go to something more neutral right so you 're always giving people that choice otherwise people feel like they have to stay there and get stuck there and if it, it is if it does have deeper roots then you're teaching them to be with something in a way that's not so skillful, right? What what mindfulness is, we're teaching wise attention, right? So we're tending to things not as an end in itself, but the the wise as in what's the skillful kind of attention with whatever's happening, right? So if it's chronic pain and it's too hard to be with, the wise kind attention is to notice it and then know that you can shift the attention to something that's easier to be with knowing that the attention will get dragged back there because it's chronic and you know that you can come back to the breath or something or sounds. Right? So you can always, it's it, just that one line, you know, if it feels like too much, you can shift the attention back to the breath, you can shift to something neutral. Right? So people have that, you're giving people that, that flexibility, that fluency. So it's not, it doesn't, you don't need to go into any of this particularly you can just say if it's too much, find something easier, find something neutral right? you're more likely to give this teaching on one-on-one when someone comes up in, in, in the break and says, you know, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed my life and my kids are acting out and my partner you know, and you go, okay, this is really helpful so when, whenever you're feeling swamped you know, really important to ground to resource, to, you know, a little fuller explanation so, you know, for most introductory you know, six-week classes or whatever you know, you're just touching on, you know, if things are too much, find something easier, neutral, grounding. Did you have a question, Sure. I just really quick, I read a book, and I can't remember the name of it. it. So, two books. The first one was Waking the Tiger. That's I was it into that? It goes into some of that, and then a second book, which is called.
11: In an unspoken voice.
0: In an unspoken voice goes into much more detail, the, the methodology. Yeah, both wonderful books. In, in the books here, there's a very simple book he wrote with ah. a CD. It costs $15. It's called Healing Trauma. Ah, yeah. And it's for people to use SV within themselves. Uh huh. Great. Mm-hmm. Healing Trauma, Peter Levine. Yeah, so hands at the back. Um. Ah. It's
11: 20 past five minutes. Um, would you be assuming that, uh, like, we you have us uh, fill out these interview sheets? Um, you know, tell, tell you a little bit about us?
0: For a class?
11: Yeah, for class, you know, students. Yeah. Uh, so, would you assume
0: in this situation that you're teaching a class that you know who, who you know the background of some of the ba- some of the background of the no I, I, I'm saying can you isn't it possible that you walk into a class and you don't know nothing about the of audience? Yeah, most of the time, that's like that's they great. haven't filled out. They haven't totally. told you. Yeah, that's why it's good to have a bag of tricks up your oh. sleeve. <laughs> yeah.
10: In MBSR we scream.
0: Right. So you, so, so you may be teaching classes, you know, um, like in our trainings, we have pre-screening forms for people, you know, so, so you have some sense of who's coming in and what their background is. And, um, and that might be what you, what you choose to do. And there might be plenty of other times where you're just doing a drop-in class or, you know, an hour-long introduction and you have no idea who's in the room. So, and as Diana said, mostly, most situations, particularly if it's in a work setting or in a school setting, that the nature of the environment is regulating, right? The psyche knows not to go here because, you know, the boss is sitting in the other side of the room, right? So there's this healthy part of the psyche knows how to stay structured, right? But when you bring in meditation, it just brings in a little more unknown... Uh, where there's a little more access to, to things, but yes, pre-screening forms uh, can be a great way to go. So a couple more questions, then we're going to wrap up. Leo over here.
11: Yes, I just wanted to follow up on uh, what on the conversation about combat veterans, uh-huh. and I work with combat yes. veterans, and I just want to just really emphasize that these techniques do work. Uh, seeking safety is a very uh, powerful, powerful protocol, and, um, and the grounding techniques work. But what's really even more important than that is our own presence. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. what's, that's what's really uh, most important. Mm-hmm. So uh, if, I am gonna, if I know I'm going to be sitting with a combat veteran, I always make sure that I'm well-grounded, yeah. and I always check what's happening in my body, what's happening mm-hmm. with my emotional state. Yeah. Am I ready? And, you know, can I help? Yeah. And um, so it's, it, it all comes together, uh-huh. right? So even though we have all these techniques that can be very powerful, uh, what we bring to the session or to what we bring to the sitting is ourselves. Yeah. And so yeah. I just wanted to, to really emphasize that. Yeah. And, yeah, also, and also, also how much I appreciate that you're presenting this.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So, and it's a really, really important point that... Um, you know, just like with any aspect of teaching, we teach ideally, hopefully, what we know. We teach from our own experience. And so this is very familiar territory. So I'm, I'm very comfortable working in very traumatic situations because I'm very comfortable with, with the territories I've gone to. So the deeper that you do your work, the more capacity you have and the more presence and the more groundedness you have. when some When stuff does arise, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not sworn, you know thrown off course. It's just like oh yeah, I know how to do that I know how to, I know how to help people ground and center and regulate because I I do that in myself. You know, so it just comes back to that principle that all the teaching, you know, comes from our practice, comes from our experience, and that that's why we may, we stay as students, you know, and we keep doing our work. We keep coming on retreats. We keep committed to our practice. We keep doing our inner work, whatever that is that supports this so we have a great tool kit to work with people. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah. Okay, last comment here in the blue. Turquoise. So
1: I just wanted to say I did a mindfulness and trauma program and it was exactly the same as every other mindfulness training program I've ever done. And I went, to the end I went to the facilitator and I said, well, you haven't really adapted your protocol. You are what makes it safe. Uh-huh. You are what makes it safe. I we went in expecting some, I don't know, some special skill set. It was the skill of the person who was in the room that made the difference. She made it safe. Right. So uh, that was number one. So just to read it, read it. The second thing is when Paul Gilbert does his compassion-focused psychotherapy, one of the key components that he uses is that you can control your attention. So I think, especially if you have a trauma history, you've had no control. You've been put in a terrible situation over which you've had no control. Mm-hmm. So just this idea that you can control where your attention goes. And that idea, I think, is so powerful. You can control where you move it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think if you're going to emphasize something, it's that, that you can control your attention. That's the most powerful tool you have. Mm-hmm. So if things get too hard, you can, you can move your attention away. So it's basically reiterating, but I think the focus on control is key.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a lovely line by Einstein who says, um, uh, The most fundamental freedom that human beings possess is the ability to. Um, I forget the word he uses. The ability to be able to place their attention wherever they feel fit. So, um, yeah, so, the, so again, following on from those points that um, the other most important piece aside from one's own experience and, and how grounded we are when we hold whatever comes up for people in our classes is also the quality of compassion. Right? So it's our, it's our compassion that um, is also uh, a tremendous resource in the room for the person, that when we can maintain a loving presence rather than being triggered ourselves or rather than being afraid, um, when we can know that that experience is also in us, that we're not separate from that pain, we're not separate from whatever they're going through, that it's part of the human experience, that 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 quality of kind presence is also an equally... Um, great resource for the person. Right? So, um, and that 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 presence of loving kindness in the teacher is a great resource. Right. So, so you're you're really extending your presence so the person can draw on you as a resource that that helps them hold themselves. You're also helping them uh, imbibe uh, or model. That for themselves, right? this is to be held with kindness, with love, not judgment, not fear, not rejection. And then also the last piece is contextualizing that uh, you know practice uh, tenderizes us, right? It, it takes us close to our human experience. We right? become intimate with what it means to be human. So many people come through the door because they want to learn mindfulness because they want to learn how to pay attention they want to concentrate they want to learn to focus they want to relax right but if they pursue you know this as you as you do you know we have to become intimate with our whole experience with our mortality with our transience with our pain with our losses with our joys and sorrows and so that you know practice tenderizes us Tenderizes you as a student, tenderizes you as a teacher, and so you're contextualizing that this is um, part of what makes us human. Right? And it's often, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, as it Rumi talks about, you know, turn your attention to the to the bandaged places because that's where the light enters you. Right? So you're also holding that the the wounds and the the challenges and the emotional struggles that we feel, feel and face. They're also what provides us healing, what opens our heart, what creates compassion, what makes us more fully human, and so you're um, so you you're you're, you're, sh- you're reframing the difficulty people are experiencing from being wrong or an aberration or problematic to, and this is actually what makes you a more full, beautiful human being. It's certainly been my experience that I bow to my traumas and my my pain because it, it's actually. It, open my heart, open the door of compassion, which I'm eternally grateful for. So let's just sit for a few moments and just let the words settle in. Just taking a few deeper breaths, releasing, relaxing on the out-breath. And just noticing Where you are, what's happening for you, as we've talked and discussed and processed. And can you meet that with a kind, caring attention? And if what is present is difficult, challenging, too much, as we've talked about, we can always go to something more neutral. Sounds the contact with the earth, stillness, silence. We can open our eyes and we can look around to orient. We can remember we're in a safe community. So may our practice allow us the skill and resources to deal with our own Humanity and may it serve our growing wisdom and capacity to work skillfully with others. Okay, everyone, so thank you for your attention. And again, we're going to shift from this more seminar mode back into uh, retreat mode. So, coming back into, you know, letting the the energy from the head center come down into the body and your feet. Enjoy this beautiful evening light. Enjoy your food. And we'll come back for a sitting at at 7 o'clock. Okay.